Welcome to Beyond the Entertainment, where we take a look at the lives of those who entertain us. I'm talking about the tragedies, scandals, and crimes committed by them or to them. No one is off limits. We're going to talk about everyone from sports entertainers, Hollywood, YouTubers, and everyone in between. Everyone has a story to tell, and I'm here to tell you theirs. everyone, it's Stephanie and I am back with a new story for you. I hope everyone is doing excellent. My oldest child just celebrated her 17th birthday and since it's also my birthday month, I have declared it the beginning of spooky season because I think Halloween is the best holiday and deserves more time anyway. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Now I have some good deep dives planned for you all coming really soon. I just need a little more time for research as I am a slow reader. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid, and I am not medicated and probably need to look into that, but this is not about me. So I was looking into stories, and I noticed that there are a lot of content creators out there who have become murderers. YouTube and TikTok are places where millions of people go to waste time watching videos about true crime, video games, tutorials, and just about anything you could be interested in. And before you take that the wrong way, I absolutely waste countless hours and stay up way too late on these platforms. There are so many good creators to watch that have incredibly interesting and funny content and seem like genuinely decent people. Then we have the ones that I'm going to talk about today. They weren't exactly famous for their content, but more for what they did when the cameras were off. They will forever be known as creators who killed. So the first person I'm going to talk to you about is Jared Lofner, who murdered six people and left 14 others injured in Tucson, Arizona. His YouTube channel was called Class It Up 10. Jared was born on September 10th, 1988, and was the only child of Randy and Amy Lofner. In his younger years, he was just like any other child and seemed to get along well with his peers. He was even described as sweet and caring by his high school girlfriend, who was completely blindsided by what he ended up doing. Once she broke up with him, his personality had began to change. Of course, in high school, we all think that they are the one and we are going to spend the rest of our lives with this person. Breakups can be rather difficult to handle, but eventually we do move on. Jared wasn't exactly the kind of person who could move on and seemed incapable of handling the breakup in a healthy manner. He would resort to drugs and alcohol to mend his wounded heart. Doing drugs and drinking at this age can cause some serious developmental issues as your brain is not fully developed yet. Although teenagers using drugs and alcohol to hide from their pain is pretty common. Jared was using drugs like pot, LSD, mushrooms, and salvia divinorum, which is a natural hallucinogen that I've actually never heard of, surprisingly. Now, these are hard drugs, especially hallucinogenics, to be using frequently, and I highly doubt that they helped with his sadness once they wore off. He eventually would drop out of high school in 2006. Jared, however, would attempt to do college, but he was suspended and withdrew in 2010. He had posted a video on YouTube while in college stating that college was a scam according to the Constitution, 
and that his school was in particular one of the biggest scams in America. It makes you wonder why he was even there to begin with. If you watch a clip of this video, he is calling everyone illiterate and his rants about the legality are just odd. He seems upset with everyone and everything that has anything to do with this school. I would say it's a pretty solid red flag about his mental state. A classmate in college recalled that he mocked a woman who had written a heartfelt poem about her abortion. He made a joke that they should strap a bomb to the fetus and make a baby bomb out of it. That's just, oh, it's so disgusting when you think about that as a joke. And I couldn't imagine how awkward it would be to hear that in class. And I'm sorry, but regardless of your opinion on the matter, their response is just wildly inappropriate. No one deserves to be mocked in that manner, and his classmates were obviously put off by him for this and other actions that he displayed in class. He would also make inappropriate remarks about war and had a fascination with Nazis. When he was suspended, they stipulated his return would be dependent on him resolving his code of conduct violations, as well as obtaining a mental health clearance, where a mental health professional would have to tell the school that he was not a threat to himself or others. There was a former teacher of his and a classmate who both stated that they felt he was capable of and wanted to commit a school shooting. The teacher had reported this concern to the school as well as reporting his odd behavior. So along with the video, it was obvious that it wasn't safe for him to remain on campus. Oddly enough, he attempted to get into the army, but was denied as unqualified for service in 2008. They apparently admitted numerous times to doing drugs during the application process. What makes this so weird was his blatant dislike for the government. If you make it known that you don't trust them, then why would you attempt to get what is a government job? He said that he didn't take sides, wasn't on the left, but wasn't on the right either. He was registered as a Republican and even voted in 2006 and 2008, but not in 2010. People that knew him described him as left-wing, quite liberal, and radical, which is the complete opposite of what he tried to say he was. He also believed that the government was brainwashing people and the only true currency was silver and gold. He also got really into conspiracy theories, which can be a fun topic to discuss, but it seemed that he was taking it to another level. When he began to seclude himself from the outside world, the internet was where he could express himself. Jared was involved in conspiracy theory forums where he would frequently discuss his views on the topics. However, the direction he took his views were a little more extreme and had other people telling him on the forum that he should seek psychological help. It seemed he truly believed what he was saying, but was also in a way consumed by them. Listen, I love to discuss conspiracy theories and do research on them. I often have conversations with my children and they get a little mad because I'll turn around and throw the conspiracy theory at them like I completely believe it, even though it's just a fun topic to debate. There often is a lot of evidence that can support what we know is truth as well as the theory. Jared would take it too far, which I think was a symptom of his undiagnosed mental illness showing its ugly head to warn others what was to come. Like I said, healthy debate, research, and discussion is just fine. But radical views and theories were a big red flag to the others who interacted with him. Jared, for some reason, had a big dislike for U.S. Representative Gabriel Giffords, who he felt didn't answer his question sufficiently at an event that he had attended in 2007. What was the question, you ask? Well, it was, what is the government if words have no meaning? I'm sorry, but I'm confused by this question. 
and how exactly you're supposed to answer it. If words have no meaning, then what was she supposed to say? He had a form letter from the event where she thanked him for attending, but his name was misspelled, so he took that as an even further slight against him. On January 8, 2011, Gabrielle Giffords was holding a constituents meeting where she would talk to the public and with them, essentially. She called it Congress on Your Corner. It was a way for her to talk with the people she served to see what issues they felt were important. Little did she know that her chance encounter years ago would come back to change her life that day. Just a few months before this meeting, Jared had purchased a 9mm Glock pistol in preparation for his attack. The morning of January 8th, he would go to a Walmart to buy ammunition for his gun. The employee would refuse to sell to him as his behavior was very erratic, which made the employee feel uncomfortable with the sale. If only the next Walmart he went to had gotten the same feeling, because they would sell him eight boxes of ammunition that had 400 rounds. I'm sorry, but unless you're going to the gun range for target practice, you probably don't need that many rounds. Honestly, even then you don't need that many, as I've maybe gone through two boxes with a partner at the range. I just think eight boxes in one purchase should be assigned something is up, which I think is why there's a restriction now on how many you can buy. After purchasing the ammo, he went back to his house, where he got into an argument with his father. Jared's dad wanted to know what was in the bag he was carrying. I think he used the argument as a distraction to keep him from trying to look in the bag. His parents were concerned about his behavior lately, so there is no doubt that if they saw that, they would have done something. His parents would just take his car keys away instead as a punishment, but Jared just grabbed his bag from the trunk of his car before he called a taxi to take him to the event. At just after 10 a.m., Jared would open fire at Congress in the Corner, which was being held at the local Safeway supermarket. It only took 17 seconds for him to kill six people and injure 14 others. That's not a lot of time. His main target that day was Gabrielle Giffords, whom he did end up shooting in the head. He was quickly subdued by bystanders when he was trying to reload his weapon, but he dropped the clip. Jared was swiftly arrested by the police, where all he said was, I plead the fifth. Now here's where things get a little complicated because this crime involves someone in Congress. So it would be hard to get him a fair trial as so many people involved would have a conflict of interest. He also killed a local judge, so they had to get one from California to oversee the proceedings. There's also an issue regarding his mental competency to stand trial. When Jared was first indicted, it was for one count of attempted assassination of a member of Congress and two counts of murder of a federal employee on January 19, 2011. He was held without bail at the Federal Correctional Institution in Phoenix, where he was isolated from other inmates, meaning that they just kept him locked up in his cell for 23 hours out of the day, and he was only allowed out for one hour. March 3rd, a federal grand jury would indict Jared with additional charges of murder and attempted murder to include the victims that were not federal employees. The prosecutors didn't want the focus to solely be on the government officials as there were so many other victims that were not. It didn't seem right to exclude them from justice. The amount of charges he would have against him would total 49 in which he would plead not guilty. May 25th, Jared wanted to change counsel because he was convinced that he had killed Gabriel Giffords and was upset when his lawyer told him that she had survived. They denied his change in counsel. That same day, he was ruled to be incompetent to stand trial as he was under treatment after being diagnosed with schizophrenia. At some point, he ends up in a federal prison hospital where they are forcing medical treatment for the schizophrenia. 
Now, even though this can be seen as a violation of his rights, since he was not found guilty yet and therefore would still be privileged to more rights than those who were convicted of a crime, he was still forced to take medication. The reason that they did this after the first appeal on this decision was because it was a threat against the safety of the people that worked at the facility that he was at and also for the safety of the people that he was housed with. But let's be real, without the medication and treatment, he wouldn't have ever been competent to stand trial. He wasn't even deemed competent until the next year on August 7th, 2012. His doctor said that due to his treatment, she felt that he was competent to stand trial, agreed to a plea, and had expressed remorse for his actions. Jared would plead guilty on 19 counts of murder and attempted murder, and on November 8th, 2012, he was sentenced to serve seven consecutive life terms plus 140 years in prison without the possibility of parole. The victims he killed that day were Phyllis Schneck, 79, Dorwin Stoddard, 76, Dorothy Morris, known as Dot, 76, John Roll, who was 63, Gabriel Zimmerman, known as Gabe, at age 30, and his youngest victim was Christina Taylor Green, who was only nine years old. The next story is a little close to home, only because this is such a huge issue in the United States. Pekka Eric Avinen, I think I pronounced his last name correctly, I'm not too sure, went into his high school in Finland and killed eight people before turning the gun on himself. He had two YouTube accounts under Sturmgeist89 and Natural Selector 89 where he uploaded videos about school shootings and violent incidents. He even included things from Columbine, Waco, and the Tokyo subway attack. On November 7, 2007, he posted a final video he titled The Jakella High School Massacre, which showed a picture of the school and a red-filtered picture of a shooter holding his firearm pointed at the camera. He also would upload a file package that contained 21 media files with pictures of himself, his firearm, the school, a music file, and two documents, one of which was the Natural Selector's Manifesto, where he explained his thoughts and reasoning behind the shooting. A month before the shooting, he received his gun license. He was 18 years old. At the time in Finland, you could get a gun license at 15, as it was very common to be part of a gun club, and the majority of the population did own guns. They also didn't have a big issue with gun violence like we do in the United States. In Finland, you are required to start with a 22 caliber weapon, so we had to settle for that as he had originally wanted to get a 9mm Glock like in the aforementioned story. He picked up his gun five days before the shooting. He would then post a video showing off his new gun, as well as one where he is seen practicing firing. He was able to obtain the weapon because he had no previous criminal history and he was from a good family. There was nothing in his history that could have given them any idea what was going to happen. Just before noon on November 7th, he went into his school and began shooting. The head teacher made an announcement telling everyone to stay in their classrooms. Police took only 11 minutes to respond, but in that time, he was able to kill five boys, two girls, the principal, and 10 others were injured before he shot himself in the head. Some reports say that he also killed the female nurse, so I'm assuming that they might be including her in the two girls in the other reports. Police would find 75 casings and 327 unused rounds. All of his victims were shot multiple times. Everything about what happened that day is based on what they discovered after the event, because he was no longer alive to tell them why. A teacher recounted that he had locked his door and waited for further instruction when he saw the gunman coming down the hall. 
He fled and was able to escape, stating that when he saw a woman's body, he told students to jump out the windows, saving countless lives that day. The gunman was a student of his, someone that he had taught and interacted with regularly. I can't imagine the fear and confusion that he must have been feeling. The victims were seemingly chosen at random, with the only connection being that they went to the same school. Pekka was described as shy and isolated himself from others, but also seemed to be the target of long-term bullying. In the months before the shooting, he started to express radical left and right views, developing a fascination with Nazis and Stalinist ideologies. He would say that he was trying to rid the world of people who weren't worthy. In his video on the day of the shooting, he declared himself a social Darwinist who would eliminate all who he saw fit. From December of 2006 to January of 2007, his parents tried to get him into a psychiatric outpatient clinic for depression and anxiety, but was denied because his symptoms seemed mild. They were advised to use antidepressants as a treatment instead. This was a big mistake on the clinic for minimizing his parents' concerns. I'm sure if he was able to talk to someone about what he had been experiencing and the thoughts that he was having, they would have been able to commit him for treatment. Now, obviously, hindsight is 2020, but I do want to say that regardless of what he did, his parents recognized he needed help. They tried to advocate for him, and in the end, they lost their child. Unfortunately, like many school shootings in the United States, he took his own life and will not have to face the consequences of his actions, but his parents probably will be living with that guilt for the rest of their lives. I think it's important to note that these are frequently done by children who have expressed issues with bullying as well as mental health struggles. I'm not justifying his actions, but we do need to think about how we treat other people because we don't know what they are going through or what they are feeling. It could take one compassionate person or one mental health professional to see the signs and prevent these things. The last person I'm going to talk about is from the popular platform TikTok. And I'm sure you know who this is and the story already because it is fairly recent. But Claire Miller was only 14 years old when she killed her 19-year-old sister, Helen. Claire had a seemingly good life from the outside looking in and was a freshman at Lancaster Country Day School in Pennsylvania. She was even the co-president of her ninth grade class and was reported as a good student. Many people from her school were shocked when they heard about the crime. Her TikTok page had around 21,000 followers, which is a pretty solid number of followers. She would post a lot of clips and images from animes, mangas, and video games that she liked. Now, of course, some of them have dark themes, but I will not be the person who blames those things for a person's actions. I don't think that what we watch on TV, what we read, listen to, or play has any effect on what we do in our real lives. I've been playing video games involving shooting since the original Duck Hunt, and I have yet to kill anyone. She would also post things with her family and just about her life in general. I think that's the beauty of TikTok is that you can express yourself freely, and there are generally a lot of people who can relate to you. On my own TikTok, my profile says just a single mom who enjoys embarrassing her kids. And I mostly just talk about my life and experiences that I have. Claire's sister, Helen, had cerebral palsy and was in a wheelchair. She needed a lot of assistance to live her life. She was incapable of doing many normal things that we take for granted. I'm sure it was hard on Claire as the younger sister, watching her get more attention and having to help her. On February 22, 2021, at 1 a.m., Claire would go into her sister's room and stab her in her sleep. 
She would then call police to tell them what she had done all the while her parents slept in their room. When police arrived, Claire was outside cleaning blood off of her hands in the snow. The police at first didn't believe that the call they had gotten was legit until they saw her outside covered in blood. Police entered the home to find Helen in bed with bloody pillows covering her face and the knife still sticking out of her neck. Claire's parents didn't wake up until the police stormed the house. Imagine that's how you wake up. Police are entering your home and finding your oldest child stabbed to death by your youngest child. I would think it was a dream. A witness came forward only 30 minutes after police arrived to say that Claire had spoken about suicidal and homicidal ideations. I didn't see anything that reported who the witness was, but she did send her friends messages that she had just killed her sister. I can only assume it was someone she was close enough to confide in who saw her text and knew that they had to say something. Aside from that one person, no one else seemed to really know what was coming. In Pennsylvania, all murder cases are tried in adult courts, even though at the time of the murder, Claire was 14. They are infamously known for trying an 11-year-old as an adult for murder. Let me say this again. Your brain is not fully developed until your early 20s, and it's very possible that you can commit murder truly not understanding yet the severity of your actions. No one knows the real reason behind it because she has really not said anything, but there is a lot of speculation about why this happened. The most common assumption is that she was jealous of the attention her sister got because of her illness. So essentially, she felt like she wasn't as important. She also had to help care for her sister at home, as well as going with her to doctor's appointments instead of just living what most of us think is a carefree life as a normal teen. I'm sure we all remember being 14, moody, thinking that we know it all, and wanting everything we wanted with little regard for others. Claire's attorney, however, are looking to seek a defense that she was suffering from a psychotic break at the time of the murder. It's a hard age since you're going through a lot of changes, and if she had been suffering from mental illness, she hid it very well from those who were close to her. It is also hard to diagnose any serious mental illness at that age, as a lot of them you can't diagnose until you're over the age of 18. Claire didn't exactly help herself out much, as she never showed any signs of remorse for what she did. She even stated that she Michael mired her sister. She was given a McDonald's breakfast and said she would have killed sooner if it meant that she got McDonald's. Now, these are things that will most likely work against her, but people say stupid things all the time. I can picture this as some sort of self-defense mechanism that she is using to minimize the reality of what she did. Her attorneys are fighting for her to be tried as a juvenile instead of an adult despite the law in the state. Claire has repeatedly denied her right to an arraignment as she continues to plead not guilty. Psychiatrists who have been working with her are stating that she was suffering from auditory hallucinations before the crime. She said that she was hearing voices telling her to cut her own throat, but instead went to her sister's room. They have stated that she has major depressive disorder, psychosis, and anxiety, which would have affected her judgment. There are conflicting stories on her being hysterical after the murder, with claims that she was also bragging. The bragging could be taken, again, as some kind of self-defense mechanism. Or maybe she's just trying to sound tough so she's not a target in prison. Regardless of all the conflicting information, And theories behind the crime, the one true fact here is that Helen Miller was brutally murdered in her bed by her sister, Claire Miller. The only issue now is trying to decide how to proceed with the trial and her punishment. 
Her mother doesn't want to see her in prison for the rest of her life, as she doesn't think that she really meant to harm Helen. She also has had to face the reality of losing both of her children. I'm sure she would love to see Claire be able to be rehabilitated, get help for any mental illnesses that they are able to verify, and see her one day succeed in life. Her case is still ongoing, so only time will tell what will happen. If she is able to go to trial under the juvenile court system, then she could be released at the age of 21. If she remains in the adult court system for her trial, then she could face life in prison. This has been three stories of content creators who have killed. Jared Loeffner spiraled after a high school breakup and targeted his local representative to take out his disillusioned hatred for the government. He took many lives that day except for his actual target. Pekka brought his legally purchased gun to school to take out what we can only assume was his revenge for being bullied. The attempts to prevent this tragedy by his parents were never taken as seriously as they should have. And lastly... Claire took the life of her disabled sister for reasons only she knows and that we can assume. They could have used their platforms for good, but instead they are now an example of what warning signs that we need to look out for. One thing is consistent. They all had some type of undiagnosed mental illness. I've said this to many people before that oftentimes crimes like these are a mental health issue. We need to look out for those signs that something is wrong and do everything we can to help our friends and family before the unthinkable happens. I hope you've enjoyed this compilation of Creators Who Kill. There are too many of these stories out there, and a few that I definitely want to deep dive into later, after I get through some of these bigger stories I already have planned, like Marvin Gaye and Errol Flynn. As always, if you have any suggestions for future stories or want to share a story with me, you can send it to beyondtheentertainmentpod at gmail.com. Give me a follow on Instagram at staylor underscore BTE, or you can find me on Twitter at BTE underscore pod. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, you can do that at anchor.fm slash beyondtheentertainmentpod slash support. You can make a monthly donation of as little as 99 cents, which can help me with costs related to research and recording equipment. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Beyond the Entertainment.